Mac Power Users, Episode 218, Mac Power Users Live for October 4th, 2014. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd alongside David Sparks. Hey, David. Hey, Katie Floyd. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited. I'm... I am I had to laugh to myself a little bit before the show started. You were mentioning how you just loaded up the Yosemite beta and you're worried it you know, may cause a problem with the live show. Right. Yeah, I've been running the Yosemite beta since like August. Well, you know. I just found it easier not to tell you. I figured that if I didn't say anything, I wouldn't, you know, get the judgmental silence. Okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, so welcome back to a live show, everybody. And but, uh, but, but I will point out, folks, that David chose to t- tell me about two minutes ago. Oh, by the way, did you know that NiceCast, what we use to broadcast, doesn't work with Yosemite? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks. That slipped my mind. Mm-hmm, just, I noticed. Just slipped right out of there. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but we're back for another live show, and, and we're going to start out with a guest. And I'm really excited about this guest. Um, uh, welcome to the show, Luke. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, everybody might not know Luke. Now, Luke, how do I pronounce your name? I'm going to screw it up. It's Luke Souls, if you want the last name. Souls. But you can stick Souls. with just Luke. Souls well, is well, easy. Luke, we should have done that. Yeah, well, it's L Souls on... on uh, uh, what's your Twitter handle again, Luke? I think it's L Souls, but honestly, I'm not so good at updating my personal Twitter. So more right, often well, I'm doing things on the iFixit Twitter account. And that's what I'm building you up for. Luke is from iFixit gang and we we've had guests from iFixit before but we wanted to talk to Luke today because there's a new phone out and we thought it would be fun to start the show just kind of talking about uh iFixit's I guess fixability score and how they see the new phones fitting in uh for mere mortals being able to change batteries and all the other things that we may want to do with our phones at some point so so Luke thanks for joining us and talking about that thanks no problem because, you know, every year iFixit is legendary for in, in the past couple of years, especially they've had folks who have flown out to Australia because that's where you get the very, very first iPhones because it's, you know, iPhone launch day first in Australia. So you fly a team out to Australia, you get in line, you get the very, very, very first iPhones. And the first thing you do is rip them apart. Pretty much. Yeah. Okay. So I did it last year when the 5S came out there. So it's about 17 hours sooner due to the magic of time zones. Basically, 8 a.m. on Friday in Australia comes 17 hours sooner than 8 a.m. on Friday in California. So I did I it last Kyle, year. This year yeah, I didn't get to go. I think Kyle was saying that you guys like draw straws or something. How do you decide who gets to take the trip? Oh, we don't have a very good formal system. It's some combination of straws and coin flipping and who hasn't got to go yet at all. But pretty much I remember about two weeks ago when they announced again that it would be first in Australia. We looked around the office and said, who wants to go to Australia? And everyone's hand goes up. So, Yeah. <laughs> no, you know, no, thanks. I'm good. <laughs> right. You know, the, the new friendlier Apple PR. I mean, some part of me thinks, well, at some point, why don't they just give iFix in an advance unit with an agreement that they won't, you know, post their, their blow up until a certain date and time. And that could happen, but maybe you guys don't want that to happen. Maybe you guys like these trips. Oh, we kind of like the trips, and everyone always thinks we, you know, must get some special treatment or things, a special way to get them first. But no, we're we're just standing in line and buying them at the stores like any other customer. We just maybe travel a little farther and stand in line a little longer than the average iPhone user. 
Right. Yeah, and we could probably do a whole show on that whole process because I know you have like a, a photo studio set up in a hotel room nearby, and uh, and you know just the idea that you know people standing in line in the U.S. get to watch you dissect this phone kind of in real time while they're waiting to get the new one. It's kind of fun. But uh, what we wanted to talk to you about today is really just, you know, how does the new iPhone 6 and 6 Plus fit into, you know, repairability? Can can we do something with these phones if they start breaking on us? The short answer is it's not terrible. It's actually an improvement from where we've been on iPhones. Apple's not fundamentally changed the design, so it's pretty much the same basic design concept as we saw in the iPhone 5 and the iPhone 5S, but scaled up depending on whether it's a 6 or 6 Plus, either a little bit larger or, in the case of the 6 Plus, a whole lot larger. But really, they're just kind of, you know, you put it on a photocopier and blow it up 20% or 50% design-wise. Fortunately, Apple did at least one thing that was really nice in that. So on the iPhone, since a couple revisions, I guess the 5S, we've had the Touch ID. So you can put your finger on the home button and magically unlock your phone. But to do that, they added this additional cable that when you open the phone, the first thing that wants to happen is you rip that cable. And Touch ID is specifically made it to your phone. So once you rip that cable, that's the end of your Touch ID forever. Hmm. Wow. Not a good thing, and it's one of those things If the first time you're doing it, if you're not careful, there's this little short cable in there, and it's really easy to rip it. But I don't know if Apple ripped too many of them themselves doing repairs in Apple stores, or they just decided it'd be nice, or what happened, but basically they totally redesigned how that works, so now the cable goes all the way to the other end of the phone and makes it much easier when you open the phone up to not have to worry about ripping this fragile little cable. Okay. So... Uh, how how do you get the phone open? Is it still the suction cup thing? Yeah, it's the same thing like that. There's two screws on the bottom. So the screws on the bottom are what we call pentalobe screws. So they're a five-pointed screw that Apple originally came up with about three or four years ago, basically to keep people out. When they first came out, they were super rare and no one had screwdrivers at all. At this point, us along with some other folks have now made screwdrivers and they've become more available, but it's still an Apple-specific screw. So you take those two screws out. Once you've got them out, it's a matter of using a suction cup to basically lift the front glass and LCD of the phone up. So it kind of opens like a clamshell. Now, I know you guys have it. Go ahead, okay. Katie. I was going to say, I know it's the pentalobe style screw that they've always used. Is it is it the same size screw that they've used before? Because I know one of the things Apple did this year is they've made the, the iPhone 6 a lot thinner than previous versions of iPhones. Have those screws gotten small, smaller? Fortunately not. So fortunately, they are the same exact screws. Now, they were tiny to begin with, so I believe the screw head is something like 0.8 millimeters for the actual where the bit goes in. So it's a tiny screw to begin with. So even with making the iPhone thinner, they didn't have to make the screws smaller, thank goodness. All right, good. So you, you and I've actually seen your your short, the, the, the promo short teardown video, and I know you've got a much more extended version. But so you, you unscrew the, the, the screws, and then you kind of use this, this, I know you have the suction cup machine, but um, other folks, you can just basically use suction cups, and then you, you kind of pry the top of the iPhone off and apart. Yeah, that's right. So we have a special tool that we sell that's basically got a suction cup on both sides that makes it really easy to do. 
It certainly makes it easier, but you can also just use an ordinary suction cup like you might find, you know, holding something up in a bathroom. So you can use that, pull the fr front up, and then it, you kind of separate it more and more. And then once you get it open, you'll see the battery is taking up about three quarters of the space inside the phone. Wow. Now, now, one of your, your previous complaints about uh, versions of iPhones is that there was a lot of glue in there or maybe glue-like substance that things were sticking together and had to be pried off. And, and once sometimes that stuff was tacky, but, you know, once it got had to get pried off, you could either damage things or it wouldn't quite go back down. Has some of that been eliminated with the 6 or are you still seeing a lot of things tacked down? Uh, it's probably better. It's still not as nice as we would like it. So the battery is still tacked down a little bit, but... It's they were fairly judicious and not going crazy with the amount of glue. So I think perhaps they're realizing that if they're offering to fix phones as well as people like I fix it trying to fix phones as well, it's in everyone's best interest to make a phone that you can actually take apart, not one that's just permanently sealed together and going to be hopeless to ever get apart into pieces. Now, Luke. So I know we're, we're in early days with these iPhone sixes. So most people have problems now. You just want to take it back to the genius bar. But at some point, these phones will be out of warranty and people are going to want to do repairs. What are the repairs that someone with some modicum of technical knowledge could could reliably pull off? So the good news is the iPhone 6 and the 6 Plus, they're definitely an improvement and on the easier side of the repair spectrum. Overall, I believe we rated both of them a 7 out of 10 as far as repairability. So the two things that everyone... And, and just to clarify, I'm sorry, 10 being the easiest to repair or correct. 10 being the hardest to repair? 10, 10 being the easiest to repair. So a, okay. a 10 is, you know, everything comes apart in pieces and it's super, super easy. So like there was a HP Enterprise desktop that we rated a 10 where that was their whole goal to make it easy. On the other hand, a 1 is something like it's permanently glued together and never going to come apart something like a Fitbit where it's just sealed and there's no hope of ever taking it apart. We're hoping the new Apple watch isn't going to be in that realm, but we're afraid that that's going to be closer to the one end of the spectrum when that comes out next year. Yeah. But anyway, back to being able to open up and fix these iPhones. The two things everyone tends to want to do most frequently is either replace a broken screen or replace the battery. The broken screen and battery, fortunately, on this phone are both things that I would say a reasonably capable but by no means expert user could do themselves. Both of them are probably a, say, half-hour-long project if you're following a repair guide like we have on our site and taking your time. So it's not something where you have to be a expert with 10 years of experience to get it apart and get it back together in the case of those two repairs. Let's talk about repairing that a little bit and, and maybe focus on the screen because that's one of the most most common repairs. Um, in fact, this is something I'm, I'm thinking about tackling for a friend of mine. They unfortunately... Um, dropped their their iPhone and shattered the screen, and you know, of course, I think I think the cost for Apple to repair it for them is some somewhere around two fifty or two ninety nine or something like that. Uh, now this is a little bit older iPhone. I think this is an iPhone five C, and um, you know, it's just that. It's a it's a bit of a hardship for them to go ahead and do that, and I know there are these these kiosks that you'll see that will pop up in the malls that will you know do them for for less, but you know Apple discourages that because they say oh well you're not you're not using you know Apple parts or you're only replacing the glass but not the digitizer. 
what is the recommended way or, or how would I fix it direct someone to, to go ahead and replace a, a screen or, you know, just the typical I've dropped it and it's cracked scenario? Well, typically what we tell you first is go on our website and look at the guide. And if you're afraid of doing it, like don't get into something you feel like you can't pull off. So in the case of like an iPhone 5C, it's a pretty straightforward repair. I'm guessing we list it as maybe moderate difficulty. And I don't know, it's probably 10 or 15 steps total. If you go back to an older phone like an iPhone 4S, they made it a lot harder on those. It might be a 40-step repair. And so you kind of can look at the guides, see what you're getting into. The guides are all available for, you know, figure out, is this something I think I could do? Or is this something where I want to, you know, take it to someone who does this every day and is a professional on that? Uh, in the case of the iPhone 6 and 6 Plus, it's basically a matter of doing a screen would be you take off the two screws in the bottom, pull up the display assembly with the suction cup, take off a few more screws that cover a metal plate that holds down the connectors for the display, at which point you're going to be able to disconnect the connectors for the display. And I'm going through that quickly, but basically that's all there is to it, and then doing the reverse to put it back together. Where do you get uh, parts for these replacements? Like if Casey's going to do the 5C, or if someone drops their their, five, their, their 6 screen tomorrow, and obviously that's not covered under the warranty unless you have Apple Care Plus. If you drop your 6 tomorrow, I don't know where you get parts. We are working on getting parts for the iPhone 6s, and honestly, we have people launch day already saying, hey, do you have any screens? I dropped my iPhone 6. Uh, but usually it takes a few months before we're able to get parts. I'm not aware of really anyone who has iPhone 6 parts now. But in three to six months, usually we have a decent selection of parts. Unfortunately, they often start out quite expensive. For example, like some of the prices we've seen for iPhone 6 parts so far are like $400 for a screen, which isn't going to be a cost-effective option yeah. at that point. That's not really encouraging. <laughs> but it, it, it will come down and improve. So basically, just don't don't drop your... Be nice to your iPhone 6 for at least a few months. Don't put a case on it and don't, dro don't drop it till, say, end of the year. And then ho hopefully by then, parts will come down into a reasonable range where it's, a you know, dropping your iPhone is a $100 or less mistake instead of a $500 mistake. But how, we, how about... How about Katie's 5C uh, intended repair? How much will it cost her to get a new screen for that? Um, let me see. I don't know what we sell those for exactly. I think it's in the realm of $100 for a kit on that. Um, yeah, I, I'm actually pulling up the guide on the on the website now. And it, I, Emma, it looks, it looks pretty straightforward. It's kind of the type of thing that I probably, if I was out of warranty, would do to my personal phone. Uh I, I think I would probably think twice about doing it to somebody else's phone because, you know, there's always that extra level of, boy, if I break somebody else's phone, they're probably not going to be happy with me. Yeah, there's, there's always that. But now, to be fair, point. it was always broken, but they tend to forget that after the fact. I don't know. The one, the one nice thing about starting out with a broken device is, especially if it's a little older device, is one to start out with. It's You don't, you don't have a whole lot to lose, uh, you know. It's hopefully going to get fixed and be working, but if you make make a little mistake, then it's you, you learn and you get better. And the more things you take apart and fix, the better better at doing it you get. Now, Luke, here's the most important question: mm -hmm. How awesome is it having a job where all you do is take stuff apart? 
it's pretty fun. I'm sitting here right now and I'm looking at, you know, a half disassembled iPhone 6 Plus and a couple of the ones that we brought back from Australia. It's fun. Now, on the other side of the desk, I have my own personal phone, which is still an iPhone 4S. Oh, well, I'm surprised you haven't upgraded yet. Yeah, well, it's kind of the I fix it problem if you can fix keep fixing your phone. Yeah, you never need a new one. <laughs> you never need a new one. So, I mean, I've, I've, I've put in a new battery on my phone. I've put in a new screen on my phone. I've got a new back panel on my phone. I've, last most recent thing, I've fixed the dock connector and the headphone jack. So, I've really replaced most everything except the main board on my phone at one time or another. But if you can keep fixing your phone, you kind of never need a new one. So, we're yeah. not necessarily advocating people do that. But, you know, it would be nice if people didn't have to buy a new phone every single year because there is definitely environmental cost to making new phones and electronics like crazy. There's a whole lot of environmental harm that comes from making electronics that we would like to, you know, not make more electronics than we have to. Right. The, um, when I was a kid, I used to take so much stuff apart in my room that, you know, my parents finally just would start buying me like alarm clocks at the, you know, at the hand-me-down store. <laughs> so I wouldn't take apart their stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was just looking, by the way, to answer the question, uh, if I wanted to do this for my friend or maybe just point them in this direction and say, okay, good luck with this. Uh, An iPhone 5C display assembly, um, you sell a whole kit for $99.95 and it includes all of the pieces. It looks like it comes in a nice little box and includes the suction cups and the penelope screwdrivers and the little pry tools and the display assembly itself. So that's a, it's like everything you need in one box to, to fix the display yourself. The idea. Good deal. Yeah, and I think I think the cheapest price that she found um, elsewhere to do it was like at least one fifty, one seventy five. So it's pretty significant savings if you're if you're you know willing to put a, a little of your your own equity, uh, you know, sweat equity into doing it yourself. And you learn something too, and it's also fun to you know show off afterwards. Hey, look at I fixed it. There's definitely a serious feeling of accomplishment when you take something apart, put it back together, and it works again. And maybe makes you a little more careful with it the next time. Right. That's or or less true. careful. It just depends. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> well, Luke, thank you for coming by. And uh, thanks for everything you guys do over at iFixit. I, everybody, I recommend everybody go check out iFixit uh, just for fun, if nothing else. Every time I get a, a piece of new Apple hardware, even a Mac, I always like go look at your teardown just to kind of know what's going on inside this thing I just bought. Cool. And uh, it's it's a lot of fun. And my my engineer friends, whenever I turn them on it, it's basically their version of pornography. They they love your site so much they can't stop looking at it. Um, so uh, so thanks again, Luke, and uh, everybody go check out I Fix It. Thanks. Hey, Katie, before we move on with the show, I would like to uh, do our first ad break. And I would like to talk about our longtime sponsor, the Omni Group. And uh, in case you guys didn't know it, the Omni Group has now released version two of OmniFocus for the iPad. And I am loving it. Have you got it on your iPad yet, Katie Floyd? Day one, you know it. Yeah, it's, it's really great. So it's got a new look and feel. In fact, it's funny because I always thought iPad OmniFocus was the best version of OmniFocus in a lot of ways. I used it so often. And then when they updated the iPhone version to version two and they updated the Mac version, suddenly the iPad felt old to me, you know. So I was really glad they updated and my, my iPad on my uh, OmniFocus is, is better than ever. So it's got this new look and feel, similar to OmniFocus for the iPhone, but it's, it's arranged properly for an iPad size screen. One of the great things is forecast view. 
They've got it right now. You know, Forecast View really started on the iPad, but now they've got this great thing. It's right in the menu bar to the left where you can just tap on the future days and jump right to them. And by the way, that's a good tip. Uh, if you're using Forecast, you make sure you turn on defer dates. So you can see the stuff starting in those dates as well. So on Monday, one of my typical things is I look through the Forecast View for each day of the week to kind of know where, you know, where the where the bombs lie in my my week. Um, it's got what I call tap efficiency. Uh, a lot of the things that used to take multiple taps now happen in one tap. You can tell that the people at the Omni Group use their product because all the little friction points that, you know, you come out of using the application every day get removed with this version too. And it's just a lot easier and faster to use. It's got text expander support baked right in, which is great. Um, one of the things I really like like is what I call heavy lifting. There are certain things in OmniFocus for the iPad that didn't make as much sense as they did on the Mac because it's, you know, on the Mac, you've got the keyboard and mouse and the interface gives you quicker access to do big tasks like moving projects. Well, I can tell they had this problem, the Omni Group 2, because they added and fixed this for version 2. You can move the start date of a project right in the perspective view or the project view, which it's just like one or two taps where it used to be a lot of drilling through menus. Uh, an example of how I use this is, once again, the Monday morning sort. Sometimes I'll see a big project on my list, and it's got maybe 10 tasks attached to it that I need to do one day this week, but it's not going to happen on a Monday. I can just tap on it right into my iPad and move it to, like, Wednesday, and then I, it's out of my view for the for a couple days so I can move on with it. They also jumped on board with all the iOS 8 goodness. They've got a notification center widget that shows you tasks that are nearly due right in notification center, which is kind of cool. And my favorite iOS 8 extension probably is the OmniFocus extension. So when I'm in Safari or any other application that has a sharing extension, I can share something directly to OmniFocus. So if I'm on a website and I want to write an article about it, I can save it to OmniFocus. If I you know get anything and I want to put it into a future task in OmniFocus, I just tap that extension button and I'm right in. In fact, I like it so much that now... I get like a little bit angry when I'm on my Mac and I'm in Safari and I can't automatically save something to OmniFocus that easy. Um, anyway, uh, it's got background sync and much more. They did a really great job. You can get into it for $19.99 and there's a pro upgrade in app purchase. But if you're a prior owner of the previous version, that's an automatic upgrade. They figured out a way to do that. So that's as close to upgrading pricing as I've ever seen. Uh, so everybody go check it out. It's OmniFocus 2 for iPad. Now they've got the entire line up to version 2, and the program continues to serve us better than ever. So go check out OmniFocus for the iPad. And thanks, Omni Group, for supporting the show. So, you know, these MPU live shows are always fun because we've got so much feedback coming in us from, from all directions. And as much as I enjoy putting them together, sometimes it's a little difficult trying to, to figure out what we're going to talk about and when. But since we just finished talking about the iPhone 6, I, I figured let's let's go ahead and keep with that theme and do a little more iPhone 6 and iOS rate related follow-up. And David, I am very curious to know whether you still have your iPhone 6 Plus, whether you're keeping it, or whether you've swapped it out. My phone shrunk. Oh, that happens. Did you leave it in your pants maybe and stick it in the dryer? Yeah, I, I did. I used the wrong the wrong formula. No, I, I really like the six plus. I you know, I've been been bemoaning it on the show and on the blog and on Twitter. And it's funny because I, I really was ready to to jump on board with the big phone, but a couple things and there's some things about it that I really love. I mean I it's got that massive screen. So people were sending me things to read that I could read on my phone very easily. And 
Uh, that was the biggest plus of it for me. We're in early days, so we haven't seen a lot of the apps really taking advantage of that extra screen real estate, but I'm sure they will in the future. But the big hangup for me was two or three times where I was in an elevator or doing something or standing in a courtroom and I needed to check a notification or get some quick information off my phone. And I had a briefcase or something in my other hand and I just could not get the thing to give me the notification without putting whatever was in my hand down and using two hands. It's just so big that even just unlocking the touch ID was quite difficult without putting the thing at risk of dropping it. So that was kind of the thing that made me say, you know, this is just too big for me. If it wasn't for that, um, I probably would have kept it. And in fact, somebody on Twitter made a very astute point to me. They're like, well, wouldn't it be nice if you had something on your wrist that would give you that, that quick information so you didn't even have to pull it out of your pocket? That would yeah. probably solve your problem, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. And it probably would. But um, but for now, at least, you know, we don't have an Apple Watch yet. And I do need the ability to quickly get it out of my pocket and get quick information with one hand. So uh, I took it back to Apple. They were very nice. Uh, they gave me, they had a, they had an extra six in there. So they took it back. I got a hundred dollars back. I'm rich. And, um, and I've got the smaller one. It's amazing. To, I mean, they're both amazing phones. I was telling a friend that there really is no right or wrong answer about which iPhone you pick. I think it's a very personal thing for everybody. And um, I think if, if you have a really good reason for the big one, then you should get it. And if you don't have a good reason for the big one, you should probably go with the smaller one. Uh, but uh, you know, there, there, there is not like a formula you can just plug in and say, okay, then you need this one or that one. I think it's just a personal thing for every person. I can't get over how small the six is now that I'm using it. That just I befuddles mean, me that you think the six is small, but okay. Well, I mean, it's just, I mean, just the lightness of it and the thinness of it. I, this is the nicest phone I, that they've ever made, I think. And the way the screen wraps around, I'm, I'm completely in love with, I was, I was in love with the bigger one too, but the smaller one just, I don't know. I really like this phone. So I I had a little um, yeah, difficulty with the iPhone 6 initially when I bought it because I found that it was a big transition for me going from the iPhone 5 form factor, uh, 4 inches up to 4.7 inches with the iPhone 6. And I'll tell you candidly, the first couple of days was difficult for me. And I think that first weekend with the iPhone 6, if you had said, hey, we we made an iPhone 6, but in a four inch form factor, I would have said, yes, please, I'll, I'll take that one. Now that I've had it for, uh, I think, what are we going on, two weeks now that I've had the iPhone 6, it it, it doesn't feel as big to me as it as it did before. And so it's, yeah. it's growing on me. Um, and and, that, and, that and I love it. Th- that may have been one of my hangups too, is, is going from the five to the six plus was quite a jump, you know, but, but yeah, it, I think for me, I totally would have got used to, in fact, a client of mine was in the office yesterday with his six plus, and I was already pining away for that big screen that he has, but just the ability to get quick information off of it just wasn't working for me. And that's something that's actually pretty key to my interaction with my phone. So Either way, so I ended up with the six. Now, the next question, Katie Floyd, is what do I do about a case? Because I've never been a case guy, and but this phone is so small in my hand, I'm not sure if I need a case or not. I'm going to try and go without, even though there are no uh, replacement screens available. Well, I ended up getting a case for my iPhone 6, and as much as I, every iPhone that I've ever owned 
I've I've gone caseless and I've just gotten one of those invisible shields for the front and the back and when Apple Care Plus has been available I've I've bought that and I should you know knock on wood or something I have never lost an iPhone to act, period I've never lost one to accidental damage I've certainly dropped them a time or two but you know never a significant enough drop that that anything is has broken a few dings and scratches here and there but but that's been about it I was really concerned with the iPhone 6 that I was going to drop it just because of the the awkwardness um, in my hand. And, and it's still awkward in my hand. You know, just the grip that I had on it was was awkward, um, as well as the fact that it was just so darn slippery. Um, I, I felt like I, I didn't have a good handle on it. And I, I every couple of times I would it would slip in my hand and I would I would catch it. But, you know, there's going to be that one time when you when you don't catch it. So I decided uh, begrudgingly that I needed to get a case for it. And lots of people recommended the Apple leather case. I think that's the case that Jason Snell is using. I think that's the case that Casey Liss is using. And I liked the look of the Apple leather case. In fact, that's the case that I have on my iPad, and I've been very happy with it. I wanted as minimal a case as possible, but um, I like the fact that it was the Apple case because it's got the nice little Apple logo on the back. And I've been very happy with the Apple leather case. In fact, since my iPhone 6 went in the Apple leather case when I got it several days ago, uh, it hasn't come out. And so I think that's probably a testament to it. It's the design is nice because it has almost a completely open bottom, which means it doesn't create a problem when I'm using the case in, in any of my docks. So I can um, use it in my iHome speaker dock and I can, um, you know, use it in my, oh gosh, David, what are the names of those docks that, that you and I both have that will kind of work customizable with any charger? We'll remember at some yeah, point. It'll come to me later. Yeah. Uh, but it, it works just fine with, with those docks. Elevation? No, it's not elevation. No, it's it? not that. Um, but, you know, it's I've been very happy with it. And I just like it because uh, it has a very nice feel to it. And it just feels very classy and minimalistic. So. Everdock. Everdock. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really, I just like the design so much that I don't want to put it in a case. Which I'm probably going to regret at some point. But at this point, I'm going to leave it, you know you know, naked, just leave it just like every other phone I've had, just like Apple intended. Okay. We'll see how that goes, huh? <laughs> With the rounded corners, I'm really, you know, throwing the dice at this point. Um, okay. Uh, let's go. One other thing. We've done a lot of coverage of iOS 8, but the one thing we started on with the first iOS 8 show when it was brand new and, uh, there have been developments since then is the family sharing stuff. And there's been actually a lot of uh, public angst about whether or not family sharing works. So I thought we'd come back to that a little bit. And, um, you know, the, so there's a couple of things. Family sharing, the idea is no longer should you have to have one iTunes account for your whole family. And one of the big hangups with one iTunes account for one family is that Apple only recognizes 10 devices. And that's not 10 iPhones or 10 iPads. That's 10 iPhones, Macs, and iPads. So if you've got a family of four, like me, with several Apple devices, you very quickly bang your head into that 10 device limit. So they came up with an idea of saying, we're going to do family sharing where if everybody shares the same credit card, everybody can have their own account and we're going to make a way for you to, to share um, uh, data from other, from other accounts that are all on that same credit card. And basically everybody can kind of get their own iTunes account rolling. And I think Apple's kind of blown it with this in a couple of ways. Number one is I don't think they've really explained how to make it work in the real world very well. And uh, Dave Hamilton did. Uh, Dave Hamilton, uh, who's been on our show before with the Mac Geek Gap and uh, MGG 521, 
uh, did kind of cover it. And Katie, you want to follow up with that point a little bit? Yeah. And so Dave is kind of in the same situation as you. He's got a wife and two kids and they're all using I, I basically the exact same setup that you are. They all have their own individual iTunes accounts um, for their own individual email and calendaring and all of that kind of stuff. And then what they have done is they have set up a separate fifth iTunes account specifically for purchases. And so everybody uses um, their own individual accounts for their own data. And then they use this fifth family account for iTunes purchases because Previously, and actually I think still currently, you can you can set up an iCloud account and then you can set up a separate account for uh, for your purchases. And so Dave was very concerned when he first went to set up family sharing that the dialogue box that they walk you through aren't particularly clear because you go to set up family sharing and because uh, he was the first one who did it, that, um, you know, he was going to be the, the manager of the family, which kind of made sense because he's probably the, the biggest geek of the family. Um that he was concerned that if he set it up first, that his account was going to be the one that was used for all of those um, family sharing purchases, which was not what he wanted because his personal iTunes account actually had no family sharing purchases in it. So he set it up and then uh, as you walk through and the screen is not very clear, um, when you get to the screen two, it asks you, okay, what, what do you want to use for your iTunes purchases? And then once you get past that account, uh, it, it all kind of works from there. And that's where you put in the shared account. So like in my case, I've got my iCloud account, my personal iCloud account that has my calendar on it and my, um, you know, just the stuff that's mine, my email account, blah, blah, blah. But we've got an even older account, which was the first, you know, basically iTunes account we ever set up back before iCloud existed or mobile me or any of the other stuff. And that's the one that we have all our purchases on. So they get you to a second screen where you put that information in. Right. And then you can also then set up and basically add the members of your, your family in. And so the way that it works is, when you, depending on how you set it up, um, by, I think the, by default is anybody who you designate as a child or anybody under 18, you can set it up so that when they purchase something, they, they can ask for one of the parents on the account, uh, approval before purchasing or before making an in-app purchase. Um, and then there's also a process where, you know, let's say that you give your kids an iTunes gift card. If they make a purchase on their phone, their purchase will be deducted or make a purchase anywhere, I guess. It doesn't have to be from their phone. If they cash in the card on their account. Right. If they cash in the card on their account, so let's say they have $25 in iTunes credit on their account. If they make a purchase on their account, that will that purchase will first go against their iTunes card credit. But David, I, I know you like me, you probably collect these iTunes cards and, and just keep them in your account. I mean, I think right now I've got like about 150 bucks in iTunes gift card credits. And so, yeah. well, one of the things I do sometimes is you'll see them on sale at like Costco, right? Where you get $800 worth of credit for 80 bucks or something. And, you know, we'll do that. Right. And, but what happens is, is if you're, let's say that your daughter makes a purchase or she makes a couple of purchases, those purchases will first be charged to her gift card. But at the point in time that she's out of gift card credit, those purchases then get charged to your credit card because you're the administrator of the family and you're the one who set it up, regardless of whether or not you actually have credit in your iTunes account. And to me, that's a little bit backwards. 
Well, that's, but that's the, that's the idea of sharing, right? Everybody's on one credit card. So it all goes to that source, source account. It's probably just a logistical thing. There's other limitations too. Uh, one of them is uh, when we talked about it last time, I said, I don't know what's going to happen with iTunes match. Well, now I know you have to buy iTunes match again for anybody that wants it. So, you know, well, you I don't, have you an, don't buy it once and get it for all the members of your family for 20 no, bucks. You don't. You no, don't. no so I don't think you, that was realistic to expect though. Yeah, but it, it does increase the yearly cost of running this by 70. It, you know, it turns my yearly iTunes match uh, cost from 25 to to $100. Well, but couldn't you have iTunes match, but not other members of your family or no? Except we all use it. I mean, okay. I've, yeah. I've got them all using it because it's just a great way to manage music. You know, if you have good playlists, you don't have to keep everything on your phone. Um, another thing that you don't get is in-app purchases, but I, I'm actually okay with that. I mean, I think software developers should get paid. And, you know, if I've got four different people using the same in-app purchase, maybe, you know, we should all be paying for it. Um, and to be honest, usually those in-app purchases are usually by just by one person anyway. It's not all four of us. I, I don't have the in-app purchases for whatever game my 12-year-old is currently playing. Um, so there's some pieces in there that I think are um, are still a little wonky. Uh, and I haven't got it fully working for us yet because even though I went through the steps that Dave describes, I'm still not getting full access to the library. And it's actually on my list for this weekend is to really kind of drill down and figure out why I keep hitting roadblocks with uh, iTunes uh, with family sharing, because I would really like for it to work because right now, as it is, um, we've got two, uh, you know, you know, I, I have that family. We all have a Mac and iPad and an iPhone. We've got two iPads that are off the, off the circuit at this point, because there's just not room for them in our, in our account. Yeah. Uh, and then the last thing I think we need to talk about is uh, an apology. Wait, 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 wait. How oh, are we no. going to say this? How are we going to talk uh, well, about this? Well, okay. So <laughs> in our iOS 8 show, we said a phrase that in, if you have installed iOS 8 might have triggered a certain digital assistant on your cell phone, which was ironic because I was talking about this feature and bemoaning the fact that it apparently did not work very well. Well, if you were listening to the podcast and you happen to have your iPhone plugged in while you were listening to the podcast, apparently I accidentally triggered said digital assistant about a half a dozen or more times on your cell phone and added bananas to many of your shopping lists. So my apologies. But thank you to those of you. Many of you took this very well and thought it was hysterical. Only a few people actually wrote us and were upset about it. So. Did I, did I do that okay without triggering anything? Yeah, I think so. And I think that we now know that if we said a certain phrase followed by something like something, tell mom something insulting, that we could cause lots of trouble. Yeah. Just, just so we know the power of podcasting. Right. But you should add bananas to your shopping list because bananas are good for you. And of course, the phrase is, hey, followed by Siri. So if you say those two words together, then all of a sudden you can access it while you're driving around, which works better than Katie Floyd thought it would. I bet you just triggered it. No, because I put words in the middle. I don't think it matters because I will tell you that I've turned that feature off because it does not work well for me. I've actually I have my iPhone sitting in that dock that we were talking about um, was at my desk at work, sometimes charging. Yeah. And I have had on two occasions, one of which was when I, embarrassing because I was meeting with clients in my office. One, I was just meeting with a coworker when we were chatting and we did not use the word hey or the name of the digital assistant in our conversation. And all of a sudden, my iPhone perked up and started yapping. 
it's kind of funny for me because I have I have the the dual version of the Everdock, and so Everdock, I've yeah. got I've got both my iPad and iPhone charging in it all day. I've got next to my bed, and I've got one at work, and uh, I've done it intentionally. But when I do it, they both go off, and it's kind of fun when they start talking to each other. So. <laughs> All right. Well, we've got some more miscellaneous feedback. Maybe we should go through some of that. Do you want to talk about a sponsor first? Uh, yeah, we can. I guess it's my turn, isn't it? It is. All right. Uh, well, I want to talk about something pretty cool that I've been using, and that's a new product from our pals over at Fujitsu. Uh, so, you know, Fujitsu has been making probably the greatest line of, of scanners for a while, but they have updated their scanners. And now you've got the IX, I'm sorry, I think it's just the, is it just the X100? No, I'm sorry, you're right. The IX100, and it is the ultimate little portable powerhouse scanner. Now this thing, Davis has compared it before to a magic wand, uh, and it's small. It will fit inside a briefcase or a glove box, but it is their single sheet fed, their single sheet scanner, um, and it will scan a single page at 300 DPI in 5.2 seconds. It weighs only 14 ounces. You can take it with you anywhere because it's USB powered and it has a rechargeable battery. So if you unplug it, it will scan up to 260 pages on the go. But what is new with this remarkable little scanner is that it will now scan wirelessly. It's always been able to scan via USB to your Mac or your PC, but now it will also scan wirelessly to your Mac or PC. And the best feature of all is it will scan wirelessly to iOS or Android or Kindle mobile devices. So this is great for you road warriors out there. So if you're out on the road uh, and you need to get your documents digitized, or for my case, if I'm at deposition or mediation and I don't want to take a laptop with me, but I think that I might have to scan and document, all I've got to do is take this little scanner with me, throw it in my briefcase. Nobody even has to know that I have it. And if I don't use it, that's fine. It just sits in the bottom of my briefcase. And if I've got an iPhone or an iPad with me, I can use the ScanSnap app and stick whatever I need to in there. And it will scan up to up to 260 pages on a single charge. Um, it's got great Fujitsu software It will that will you know just work with all of your devices. Uh, it's got dual scan functionality, which means if you're scanning two small documents, you can scan them simultaneously. And for large documents, like documents that are larger than legal size, those documents can easily be scanned in as multiple pages and then automatically stitched back together. And the ScanSnap software is top notch. Uh, it will OCR your documents. It will save them as a searchable PDF to your computer into a particular folder. Uh, it will attach them to an email. You can either scan and directly print, or you can save to many other apps and services like Evernote, Dropbox, or even Fujitsu's own apps, which they now bundle with the scanner. Uh, it This is the scanner that so many Mac Power user listeners have been asking me about. You know, when are they going to bring the wireless scanning to their mobile scanner? Uh, and they have. So you can check them out and find more information about them at easy.com slash SSMPU. That stands for ScanSnap. MPU. Uh, and thanks to Fujitsu for uh, supporting our show. I've been carrying mine in my briefcase every day and I was first carrying it because I was writing a review of it, but now I, I've decided it's just going to stay with me. It's just so useful having that little wireless scanner there anywhere. Right. Uh, so we got some feedback. Alan wrote in about um, the airport extreme and he says, I'd love the airport extreme if it weren't for the lack of QOS support. QOS is a feature available on many routers that allow prioritizing traffic 
that must have the highest speed, like internet telephony, like Skype or Google Voice, and video streaming. And that way, if someone else is in the office or house starts to download a file, it won't affect the quality of your conversation or video viewing. So that would mean that you don't have to go around your house and tell everybody you're getting ready to record a podcast so they can't hop on Netflix. Yeah, well, I've had that happen. Well, I would think that would actually... I'm not sure how that would prioritize uh, video streaming versus no, you Skype. Could, you could tell it to prioritize Skype. Yeah, because that, that has happened on our show once in a while. Yeah. I'll be doing just fine. And then suddenly um, the, the signal will go out and my daughter is, is, you know, powering through Doctor Who in her room. So anyway, um, so that's a good point. I wasn't really aware of that. He likes to use the Netgear WNDR3700. Isn't that great how they name their products? I just mm-hmm. love that. Yeah, uh, that uh, has QS simultaneous um, 2.5 and 5 gigahertz and costs under 80 bucks. You know what? That may be right. But I have to say, I've just never had a router other than an Apple router that just worked. It seems like every time I get one, I've got to reset it and do all these things. Uh, for whatever reason, I'm sticking with my Apple router. Yeah. Uh, and we also got some security related feedback. Uh, Brian wrote in with a security concern relating to resetting a Mac's password. And his story, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, went something like this. So he, he bought a brand new Mac and was migrating his data over using Migration Assistant from another Mac and had nothing but trouble, couldn't get it to work. Apple Care couldn't quite get him up and running. So finally, he just said, you know what, forget about it. I'm just going to go ahead and do a clean install of my data. It's not that big of a deal. So on day one, with his new Mac, he starts the process of doing a clean install. And that process, as we've talked about, is not as bad as it used to be, but it's still a project. So day two goes by and he comes back to his Mac and he can't get it to wake. Well, it wakes from sleep, but it won't take his password. He knows what it is. No matter what he does, he can't get the Mac to take the password that he set up the day before. So back to Apple Care he goes. And the person on at Apple Care walks him through a very simple process uh, to reset his password. And I did not realize how easy this is. And I'm not going to tell you exactly how to do it because we'll have people write in and tell us that's irresponsible. Uh, you can certainly Google it for yourself. It's very easy to find. But basically, if you shut down your Mac, boot into the recovery partition, open the terminal and type in a terminal command, you can reset the Mac's password. And so the takeaway from this is, is that if your computer gets picked up by a knowledgeable person or someone who just knows how to Google, that they can reset your administrative password in less than a minute. Uh, and Brian said he expressed this concern to the Apple Care technician, and she agreed that she said, yeah, it's, it's true, but most people don't know about this. And, uh, you know, security by obscurity is not the greatest security plan out there. And so how do you protect yourself from this? Well, well yeah. go ahead. Uh, he doesn't address file vault though. Well, that's true. He doesn't. And and we can address file vault, but the Apple care tech said, well, you, you can set, you can set an open firmware password and, and we'll probably put a link into the show notes uh, or Hey, well actually as to how you can do that. Thank you so much. Um, and, and Brian said, you know, I, I may look into doing this, but I'm, I'm certainly going to now think twice about uh, this kind of security and storing critical passwords in Apple Keychain. But, you know, David, what I was going to recommend, and, and you go right there to it, is that FileVault would have stopped this. Yeah. Yeah. And and FileVault is built right in to your Mac. Uh, we, you know, our show's been around long enough that we've kind of gone the route with uh, disk encryption. When we first started doing the show, uh, there was a third-party product. Um, There's one called TrueCrypt, and then there was also one called that I paid for something like $250 a year at the time, 
And now I forget the name of it. But anyway, there was <laughs> there was a third party uh, enterprise family service that would do disk encryption, which uh, basically makes it very difficult for people to get your data without a, a password that shows up when you first boot up the computer. And now they've added that to the Mac with file vault file vault originally was something that we used to tell people not to use because it was goofy and resource intensive and really not all that great. And then they came out with a new version. I wish they had given it a new name, frankly, because the other one had so much bad luggage attached to it with the, its reputation, but the new file vault's awesome. And if you've got a laptop and you're going out of your house, or even if you've got an iMac at home and you don't want someone to be able to get into it easily, enable file vault. I use it on all my Macs and I have not seen any performance decrease. I'm sure there may be somebody out there with a website that's figured out how many milliseconds it has cost me, but it's not enough for me to notice it. Yeah. In fact, I probably would not even recommend the firmware password route at this point. I don't even think that Apple really recommends it anymore at this point on on modern operating systems. File Vault 2 is is really the way to go with this. But the thing about the open firmware password, is it's maybe less of a concern now that Macs are less serviceable, is that the firmware password does not actually encrypt your data, which means if somebody pulls your hard drive, they can still get all of your data. And I think that the firmware password was reset just by removing and reinstalling a piece of soft uh, hardware would reset it. So I think if you popped a RAM chip out and stuck it back in, or just cha- popped a RAM chip out and rebooted your Mac and changed the configuration some way, um, that, that that firmware password would go away. So th- it's it's a little bit scary, um, you know, if you have just a Mac right out of the box, that yes, that password can be reset. So I have File Vault 2 enabled on all of my Macs. Um, I have not run into any day-to-day problems. We've got a couple of people in uh, in the chat room asking about, well, how does that work with your backups and does it work with Time Machine? I haven't had any problems. I haven't had any problems with Backblaze or Time Machine um, or Carbon Copy Cloner or Super Duper or any of those uh, when I've been using File Vault 2. I've been running it on all of my Macs for years now, and I have not once had to get in, in you know, get in the way of my day-to-day operation of my computer. In fact, I'd venture to say if there's one thing you take out of this exact show today is turn on File Vault if you haven't, because it's just so easy. You go in, you flip a switch, and it does everything in the background. The other product that I couldn't remember earlier was PGP. I don't know how I forgot that. It was called PGB Whole Disk Encryption. Then they got bought by Semantic, and now they're part of the Semantic products. But if you're on a Mac, you don't need to do that stuff. Just turn on File Vault, and you're good. And I'm also told from the Internet that I should be calling it File Vault 2 because it's different. But it's, that's not what Apple calls it in the dialog box. It's just called File Vault. And, you know, this may be a good time to talk about Apple has made, rightfully so, you know, Tim Cook put this this big uh, proclamation out there about Apple's stance on security. And uh, Apple's now got a website devoted on their or a page on their website devoted to security. But they have finally stepped up their game a little bit with regards to security. And a couple of things that I am particularly happy about is there is now if you turn on two step uh, verification uh, on your Apple ID, which I strongly encourage everybody to go do. You also get two-step verification for iCloud.com. So if you're trying to log into your email and the ability to create device-specific passwords um, for services that um, are not, you know, direct plugged in. So that's a great thing too. Yeah. And uh, related to that, we had an email from Carol about two-step verification and keychain. And she had written that she understood from a prior show we did that it was unsafe to have your keychain on iCloud and wanted to know if that's right or not. Um, You know, I I don't know what to say, really. I, I, I know that I keep 
uh, parts of my keychain in iCloud with the iCloud backup, and parts of it I don't. Um, I keep my like my banking stuff and some of my like PayPal and Amazon. I keep that stuff backed up with one password because it's got a little extra level of security in it. But I use iCloud for a lot of things that I think are less intensive. I think it's kind of a personal decision everybody has to make. Apple's obviously pouring a lot of resources into trying to make sure this is a secure system. I don't think I wanted to get the in, the impression out there that it, that it's not useful at all, but I don't use it for the real heavy stuff that I'm the stuff that I'm most worried about. I, I still use it to order my cheese. Well, so long as you're getting your cheese on time, that's really all that matters. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're making fun of me for that because our deli has online ordering. Is that, is that next to the sandwich place? Yeah. Great. I, well, I can order sandwiches from on online. It's great. Now, now do you get your, your turkey peppered or do you get it like honey baked? How do you get your turkey? Oh, it depends on what I'm in the mood for. I do like the honey baked ham sometimes or the honey baked turkey. Yeah. Not honey not baked me, ham. Not me, man. I want, I want it peppered. I want to sweat when I eat turkey. I want mm. that stuff to be spicy. Oh, we digress a little bit. A little? Okay. Hey, um, let's talk a little bit about education because we've talked about that quite a uh, lot lately and we've had some really great feedback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, let's hear first from uh, Brian, who is now Dr. Brian, we should call him. Congratulations. He just defended his thesis and is getting his PhD. So That's pretty awesome. That yeah. is that is pretty awesome. And uh, I want to say hi to Brian's mom. And sorry that I was late in getting uh, Brian's audio comment on the show, but better late than never. And here it is. Hi, Dave and Katie Floyd. This is Brian from Rochester, New York. And although I wouldn't consider myself to be a Mac Power user, I do have some experience in using my Mac to go back to school after being out in the professional world for 10 years. And I wanted to share some of my workflows with you and your listeners, specifically how I used Evernote. I found that I lived in Evernote for the five years that I was in school getting my master's and my PhD. I would create a an Evernote notebook and a tag for each class I took. And I would name them using the Merlin Man class name X trick with X at the end of each name. And that way, everything was very uh, easily searchable through Evernote. And I would put everything into Evernote. I would take my class notes right in Evernote, typing them as the professor spoke. I would put my syllabus right in Evernote. Any handouts or digital handouts the professor had, I put them in Evernote. If I had a meeting with the professor or a meeting with classmates for a group project, I put it all in Evernote. Katie, you would probably be able to put notes from Omni Outliner in there as well. Everything is easily searchable through the notebooks and tags. Everything is OCR'd through Evernote. And another advantage of Evernote too is if you if your professor doesn't allow technology, and there are a lot more professors that do that than you might expect, then you can take your notes on a notepad or a legal pad and then scan them in right into Evernote and you'll have them all there. So Evernote really was a lifesaver for me in going back to school and getting my master's and my PhD. And I think it could help everyone else who goes back to school as well too. So Katie, best of luck in going back to school. And thank you guys for all your great shows. I look forward to learning a lot more from you guys in the future. Thanks. Yeah, Brian even put up a website at uh, brianrinshaw.com where he put down Evernote for academics and a whole list of tips about how he uses Evernote. Yeah, we'll talk more about that a little bit later. We we also got a, a note from Kelly, who is doing a couple of things that are pretty cool that I didn't know that you could. 
And she says, while she loves keeping things digitally, sometimes it's just easier to have a disposable paper copy. And she's a teacher, so she especially likes doing this while teaching. And she uses something called the ARC Customizable Notebook from Staples for this purpose. Uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And she says, at the beginning, this is what I thought was particularly cool. She will take her textbooks to Staples which is an office supply store here in the United States that has kind of a copy shop in the front of them. And they will cut off the bindings for one to $2 per book. And okay, she, let me stop right there. Okay. I, I didn't know you could do that. I didn't and know you could do that either. I am so interested and in, I've got some books because I've been using the razor blade technique. Right. And I'm thinking, why not just have them saw it off? Yeah. For, a, for a couple of bucks of books. Yeah. Yeah. And and then what what she does is she'll then scan them, uh, run them through her scan snap, and then she'll punch holes in them and put them in her binder and just add whatever relevant chapters are to her binder without having to lug the entire book back and forth. And then if she needs the entire textbook, she's got it on her computer to scan. Now, of course, that limits her ability to try to sell the books back later. But, you know, the convenience works well for her. Yeah, pretty clever. Yeah. The other thing she also does um, is she has used uh, GitHub kind of as a repository for organizing and posting documents for her class, uh, as opposed to one of these proprietary kind of class management solutions, which I thought was a good idea. Yeah, I I talked earlier about how much I valued flashcards in my student days, you know, back before there was an Internet or computers. And we wrote everything on a shovel with a piece of coal. But flashcards are really great. And um, somebody wrote in, Harry wrote in and said that he's been using studyblue.com, S-T-U-D-Y-B-L-U-E.com, for flashcards with his students. And he says there's a web-based component so they can run them in the classroom. And he said when he told them, hey, guys, there's an iOS app you can log on to with your phones and iPod touches and iPads, and you can do these at home, the kids went nuts. So for teachers out there, why not help your kids get into that flashcard habit? And, and, you know, if it's, if it's on their iOS device, they're going to try it out because that's what, that's what the kids do these days. Right. Yeah. Thanks, Harry. And we also had Pete write in with a question about setting up word processors for a lab. And I think we'll have a couple of thoughts, but if any of you have done this before, have recommendations for him, uh, please let us know and and we'll try to either follow up or, or get you in touch with Pete. But, um, Pete says that he has a lab of 25 iMac desktops in an elementary school running 10.9.5. And currently they're using Microsoft Office 2003 for the Mac in the past, but would like to move to a more current program for the students to learn on. Now he can buy pages through the Apple education uh, discount for $10 a license. And that's not too bad, you know. But there are apparently rumors that Microsoft Office 2014 is coming out. And would that be worth the wait? In the short term, they've, they're have they using uh, LibreOffice for the students. Uh, and that seems to work well enough. But I, my, what I'm getting here is he, I think he wants to move the students you know, more to a, a modern program and, and perhaps something that they'll be more likely to use out in the, you know, the real world or the professional world. Yeah, in my kids' schools, the, they quickly gravitated to Google Documents for this process. And so every computer would have Google Docs running on it, and the kids would have their login, and then they could continue working on their essay when they got home on their home computer that way. And there was no disks to swap, and then they had a, a method to share the documents with the teacher. Uh, so that that's another option. Uh, Google Documents isn't really what I'd call a full-blown word processor, but that may be, may be good enough. And I'm looking forward to hearing from our educator listeners because I'm sure there's other options out there. 
Yeah, I'll also point out that Fraser Spears has great resources, and he and Bradley Chambers do the, again, I think the name is the Out of School podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's Fraser. Right, right, okay. There's no I, just Fraser. Fraser, got it. Um, so go check that out. Um, you know, um, it's time to do another ad spot, but I think we have some, some crossover here, Katie. We do have some crossover because we did get a a note from Brian who was telling us about a series that he did on his website, specifically on Evernote in academics. And he wanted us to know specifically that thanks to Mac power users, that this site was hosted and created on Squarespace. And so this is where we get into the AdPod spot spot. And we'll have a link to Brian's uh, site in the show notes. But Brian was able to use Squarespace. I was able to use Squarespace. David was able to use Squarespace to create our sites because it is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, online store, a place to host anything that you want from a blog, from a series of tutorials, uh, just a place to... Yeah, to, to share your thoughts. Uh, it is simple and easy to create a beautiful website. Uh, they've got these custom templates that are absolutely gorgeous. They're ready for drag and drop easy to take your content, move it into Squarespace. If you're currently using another provider, most of the time you can import your content directly into Squarespace. If you have any trouble, though, if you need some additional assistance getting things set up, they've got 24-7 customer support through live chat and email located in New York City, Dublin, and Portland. And best of all, their plans start at only $8 a month. And if you sign up for a year, it includes a free domain name. So you can get started with Squarespace uh, for absolutely nothing. Just head over to squarespace.com, use the offer code MPU, and you'll get a free two-week trial, no credit card required. Uh, But if you use our offer code, you'll get 10% off your first purchase. So go ahead and get started on that. If you want to do what, like what Brian has done, go check out his, his website. We'll put a link at the show notes uh, and see the types of things that you can create. If you want to start with a blog, if you want to add some video content, if you want to add some photos, if you want to create a photo gallery, even if you want to do some simple commerce, if you've got something to sell, or if you've got a lot of things to sell, Squarespace can help you out with that too. All of their sites uh, will automatically reformat depending on the size of the device that you're on. Uh, so if you've got an iPhone 6 Plus, if you've got an iPad, or if you're on a desktop web browser, it doesn't matter. You don't have to do anything special to code your sites. Everything on Squarespace is going to look great no matter what platform you're on, no matter what browser you're using. You don't have to sweat any of this because Squarespace has already sweat all the details for you. So uh, to our listeners, if you're using Squarespace to to make your sites, send us a link and maybe we can talk about one of one of your sites on a future show. So thanks to Squarespace for their support. For 10% off and for a free trial, go to squarespace.com, use our offer code MPU, and thanks to Squarespace for their support of Mac Power users. And my wife, uh, Daisy, is starting to write for a Disneyland blog. Cool. And now she, wa- she wants to put up her own. So this weekend, I'll be talking to Squarespace and setting up a new site for her. <laughs> All right. I, I think, I don't know how many sites I've, I've bought through Squarespace. I've kind of lost track because my family, everybody keeps getting into it too, but Max Sparky's there and I love it. Um, you know, uh, looking at Brian's website, it kind of got, you know, triggered this thought in my mind about what do we do with text notes? And I see this on Twitter and in some of the feedback from listeners quite often, because I've, I've talked on the show recently about, I'm not sure where my future is in this stuff. 
Um, I have played with Evernote as a replacement for plain text files that I've traditionally done, you know, in something like NVAlt. And I don't think it's really a satisfactory solution for me. Um, I, I know there's a lot of people that love it, but uh, entering text on it on iOS is really not that easy. And, you know, like for instance, text expander doesn't work. And I, I guess I could go to the text expander keyboard now, but the, you know, it's just, it's just really not that satisfactory toward for me. And the idea of having these separate silos of notebooks is a little, it's just a little difficult for me. And it's a little intrusive in terms of getting to the data quickly. I can get to it much faster in NVL. So I've kind of given up on Evernote for that, that problem. But I also really want something more robust than NVAlt. I want something that's going to have tags in it and give me a little bit more organization. And I'm really seriously looking at John Gruber's uh, product, you know, Vesper, which is a really great little text editor that holds a lot of notes and has tags. But it's only on iPhone now. And I know they're actively working on a Mac version. I even, you know, I even wrote them and tried to swing some weight to get in on their beta because... I'm looking for a good solution for that stuff. There's another app out called NoteFile that's kind of good, and it's from the people at JuneCloud, which is a reliable you know company. They do good work, and there syncs through iCloud or through their own server. So uh, I, I really haven't answered this question for you yet because I don't have the answer myself. But I'm looking for something that does a little bit more than what I'm getting out of NVL, but I don't think the answer is Evernote. So that's kind of an ongoing problem for me. How are you doing that, dealing with those little text files, Katie? It depends. I mean, I don't tend to keep those text files around as long as you do. I Once I create them, I tend to use them for reference. And in that case, they go into Evernote. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. They go into- well, well, let us know in your uh, feedback, because I'm I'm learning from this stuff as well. And, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing Vesper on the Mac and seeing how all this stuff fits. Um, so let's talk about some listener tips. Yeah. Uh, Jay, you want to go Jamie first? Yeah. That well, Jamie's, Jamie sent an audio comment about how she's using text expander for Toastmasters. So let's take a listen. Hi, Katie and David. This is Jamie from Connecticut. After listening to your show and presentations, I thought that a tip specifically for Toastmasters, people who practice public speaking, might be of interest to the audience, especially if there are other Toastmasters out there like myself. One thing that Toastmasters clubs sometimes do after meetings is that they send out a meeting recap. It is usually the same info from meeting to meeting. What I did was set up a text expander like Snippet. I'm on a PC using Phrase Expander, and I use it to create this email. I use a snippet with a form to select specific member names or other standard info for things such as who did what role, what manual their speech was from, And I also have some text boxes for pieces that are a little non-standard from week to week. This saves me loads of time, and the emails end up being very detailed. This is great for keeping people excited about the club by potentially being mentioned in the message, but it's also great for record keeping. This tip could certainly be applied to any organizations that have a standard meeting follow-up email. As always, I love the show and thank you so much for everything that you do. This is a good tip from Jamie, and it's not just applicable for Toastmasters members. Anytime you sit in a room with people and you want to do follow up or send a confirmation note afterwards about what happened and you do that more than once, maybe you should have a text expander snippet. I've got several meeting based snippets that I use. And, you know, people when I, I just did that this week, I was in a meeting with somebody and 
there were three people in the room and we all had different tasks arising out of the meeting. Uh, I had a snippet that I ran at the beginning of the meeting. So I was capturing all that stuff on my iPad as we were talking. And then as we all walked out the door, I pressed the send button and I did it all in drafts. And, and before they got to their cars, they had an email list of everything they needed to do. And not only does it, you know, help you keep organized, it helps the other people in the room keep organized too. And text expander makes this very easy. So I I've actually got a couple meeting snippets on my website at maxsparky.com slash T E snippets, but there's some others on the web. And frankly, you could do it yourself. It's not that hard to, you know, just think of the issues that you're meeting. Thanks, Jamie. Nobody likes going to meetings with you, David. Well, everybody's accountable. I put I, I put my name on just as many things as I put other people's names. No, that's on, what know, I mean. So, They're like, yeah. oh, Max Sparky, he was paying attention, man. Now I got to do that. Yeah. Well, a few weeks ago, I had one and I forgot to send it out. And the next morning, you know, because drafts has that little thing where it gives you the badge where it shows if you've got something that you haven't processed in it, you can turn that on in drafts. By the way, it's a great tip. If you if you use drafts, the way I use it is it's a very temporary spot. It's going to go somewhere that text. And I had a meeting that I captured that way and I forgot to send the email. And the next morning when I woke up, I saw the little badge. I'm like, Oh, I got to deal with that. So I just sent it out, you know, in the morning and I got a call later the day said, I don't know what scares me more. The fact that you made those detailed notes or the fact that you sent it to me at five in the morning. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, uh, JF also wrote in. Yes. He sent in an audio comment. Yeah, let's hear what he has to say. Hi, David and Katie. This is JF calling from Las Vegas. I was calling regarding MPU 211 workflows with Guy English. And David and Guy were talking about multiple tabs in Safari. And it dawned on me that they may have overlooked the really useful shortcut to close other tabs in Safari. And that keyboard shortcut is Option Command W. They were mentioning how many tabs they had open. And they just wanted to close multiple tabs by closing each one separately. Well, with Option Command W, you can close every tab except the one you're on. And you don't have to worry about being on the tab you want to keep in case there are too many and you just don't want to filter through them. You can use Safari's history menu to quickly find find it in the list of uh, recently visited sites. Also, if you feel particularly geeky, you can also use Spotlight and type the word kind, followed by a full colon, and then either web page, all one word, or Safari, and that'll list all the web pages you've visited recently. You can also put a space after that, maybe add a keyword, and that's going to help you find what you want. Love the show. Keep up the good work, guys. Bye. JF always has a tip. Yeah, and that, that option one was great. So you can close every tab except the one you're on. Nice. I didn't even know about that. Thanks, JF. And we also heard from Tyler, and although I have heard about this in the past from other Mac Power users listeners, so I'm, I'm glad Tyler decided to, to send an audio comment in and send this in about a service that he uses to automatically download uh, his statements. So here we go. Hey there, David and Katie. This is Tyler Zollinger, and I have something that I think your listeners would really love. It's called File This, and it... Um, downloads things like your bank statements or your cell phone monthly statement or your car insurance statement into a Dropbox folder so that you can use a Hazel rule to rename the file and file it along with all of your other documents. Uh, I've used it for the last nine months now and it's worked really well. Um, 
every once in a while it doesn't quite connect or something like that, but you just have to go in and kind of refresh it and, and, uh, it will download all the previous statements, uh, that it missed. And so I really love it. And I think that if some of your users give it a try, they would really love it too. Thanks. Okay. So the file, this guys were at Macworld this year and I got to know them pretty well and they seem like a, a good group of people. They're, you know, the, the concern with these services is always security. I mean, are you going to give some third party your login information for your bank statements, you know, <laughs> because to, to download that, they've got to have access to it. They can't, you know, they can't magically make that happen. Right. And, and, and it's and, not just one account. It's every account you want them to have. So you're going to have to give them, you know, your, your login for your cell phone, your login for your insurance provider, your login for your bank, your login for your credit cards. Like, yeah, that has, that has always been what has kept me from using a service like this. Well, and the other, so that there's the security question. And then there's also the logistical question. Uh, getting these logins isn't easy. And every portal, for whatever service or, or vendor you have is going to be a little different. And it's always a challenge for these companies to find a way to get in and actually download it for you. How are they going to do it? Because it's not like it's a magical recipe. You can use the same one on every website. Uh, your, you know, your lands in account is going to be different from your gas card account, for instance. And these guys at file, this are really trying to tackle both of those problems. They're really coming at security hard. And they're also, trying to make it very useful service. I'm, I'm very seriously considering them because I'm working on an update to paperless, uh, putting them in because I think they may be worthy of the cut. I'm not, I don't want to say that just yet. I don't want to recommend it just yet because I'm testing it myself and I don't want people to go in there and, and lead them astray. And I'm not going to put it in the book update until I'm convinced it's worth putting in the book. But uh, this is the best contender I've seen in the space yet. Yeah. And David and I have talked about the ways that we do this. Um, you know, I, I use a Hazel rule with Evernote and David uses a Hazel rule with Dropbox, but those still fundamentally require that you click on a link, you go to a website and you manually download the statement. Now, I don't find that to be that particularly big of a burden because once I've set up my Hazel rules, if I doubt one, as soon as I download the statement, I'm done because Hazel then kicks it off from there and does all of the post-processing. And I just try to stay on top of those as the statements come in. And so when I get the notification, which is usually electronic, that there's a statement, I'll take the the minute and a half that it will take right then and there to go do it. And that happens a couple of times a month and then I'm done. Yeah. Uh, Liam wrote in with a real fun question. He said, you know, when you do the nuke and pave, what are the apps that you must have every time? And we're running out of time. Katie's got to, you know, she's got an important appointment. She's got to get out of here. Uh, so, I thought what we do is put that one out to the listeners and we'll do this in the next live show next month. I'm going to have my list. Katie's going to have her list, but we'd like to hear what your lists are too. Of what are the key apps that go on when you, when you nuke and pave your Mac? Does that sound like fun? That is, but you forgot his quick tip. His well, quick, you share his his quick, quick tip, tip is that if you want to help to make your, your list of all the apps that you currently have installed, what you can do is um, you can go into the terminal and um, type a slash applications um, apps. LS. Uh, yeah. LS. Oh, I'm sorry. LS slash. I think it means list. Yeah. yeah. LS space slash applications. Um, and then the greater than symbol apps.txt. Sorry, I'm not a programmer. Someone that's probably got a, a name for it. Um, and you'll get a list of all of your applications and a text file. 
clever. Yeah. Okay. So that's going to be fun. We're going to do that next month. Yeah. We've, um, got, we've got a few more listener questions, and I think we've got time for them. But do you want to talk about our last sponsor real quick? I would like to talk about our last sponsor, and that is lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A. Lynda helps you learn and keep up to date with your software, pick up brand new skills, and explore new hobbies with their easy-to-follow video tutorials. Whether you want to get tips on the latest online tools, learn how to use Photoshop, or improve your photography skills, lynda.com offers thousands of video courses in a variety of topics. There's over 2,400 courses currently, and they're taught by industry experts, and there's more added weekly. Lynda.com works directly with software companies to provide training on a timely basis, so when the new version releases, you can immediately go get the new video download from lynda.com. They have courses of all experience levels, so whether you're a beginner or advanced, you're going to get something out of it, and it's all for one low monthly price of $25 a month. And that gets you unlimited access to their entire lynda.com library. You know, if I had more time, I think I would just watch a Linda video every day. I enjoy it so much. I've got a, I was just looking at my queue before the show started because I knew I was going to be talking about Linda and I've got some real great stuff in here. I still haven't watched yet that I want to see. Um, there's uh, David Allen has done a getting things done lynda.com course. And I definitely want to watch that. Wow. And, uh, and there's a lot of reasons I want to watch that, but I'm not sure I should say right now why. Um, they have one for Swift Essential Training. So people have been writing me saying, hey, you talked about your tip calculator. Well, if you go on lynda.com, there's a three-hour course that gets you up and running with Swift. They've also got some stuff in here that's not really programming or nerd-related, but stuff I kind of want to watch. There's one called Getting Out of a Rut or Breaking Out of a Rut. Sometimes I get in these little ruts. I'm too busy. I don't you know, I feel start feeling sorry for myself. So maybe I should watch that video. Maybe that'll give me some ideas about how to deal with that stuff. Um, and a grammar girl has done one, Creative Spark, changing writing one word at a time. So there's some stuff in here that is geek related, but there's also some just real practical stuff to help you with your life. And like I said, there's 2,400 videos. So if you go in there, you're going to find something you like. Um, so all the courses are produced at the highest quality. They're not like homemade videos on YouTube. Uh, you can watch from your computer, tablet, or mobile devices. They're broken into bite-sized pieces. So you can just watch the segments of the course that are relevant to you. You can skip over the stuff you don't need to watch. And you can download the project files with a premium plan so you can practice along with the instructor. Uh, They're structured so you can learn from start to finish or jump in and just get a quick answer. And there's also searchable transcripts, playlists, and certificates of course completion. They've got the, the whole enchilada there. Premium members with an annual plan can download the courses to their iPhones or iPads. If you are a road warrior and spending a lot of time on airplanes, this would be great. Just get a a premium downloadable account, and then you can spend those times between L.A. and New York learning stuff. I think it's a great idea. So we've worked with lynda.com to give you a special offer for access to the entire library for seven days. And that's not a partial download or Half of a course, you get the full thing for seven days. You know, watch as much as you can get down. Uh, Lynda.com slash Mac Power Users is the website. So L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash Mac Power Users with no spaces. And try Lynda.com for free for seven days. Check it out. And thanks, Linda, for sponsoring the show. All right. We do have a question from Stephen about how do you track and manage goals? So let's hear. Hello, David and Katie. This is Stephen Chakron from Connecticut. I love your show, and I'm grateful to you and your sponsors for making it possible. Your task management show a few weeks ago left me with a question for you. 
the task managers and techniques you discussed were fine for tracking tasks, but tasks and projects are only ways of achieving goals. Do you have any tools or ideas to share for making and tracking goals? The best I've come up with is Omni Outliner, one of my go-to applications, but it's so easy to get lost in the outline structure. I have the same problem with mind mappers. You're looking all over the screen for things. I want the structure for a goal application to be there when I ask for it, but not to get in the way. Maybe that suggests something like Curio or Tinderbox, but then there would be a lot of work setting it up, and I'd have to give up on iOS access. There's also an application called Opus Domini that's a festival of skeuomorphism. Or maybe good old Evernote is the right tool for this. What do you think? I think festival of skeuomorphism just became our show title. I love that. <laughs> the, um, it's funny. I, I, he, uh, Stephen makes a great point. We didn't talk about that at all. And uh, I can tell you my personal technique for that is is every I have a text file. I know that it doesn't sound very, you know, sexy, but I've got a text file and it's aspirational. I've got a list of 14 things in here that I want to be good at, you know, ranging from being a good father to, you know, being a better writer and different things. And and then I write like a narrative one or two paragraphs under about, you know, kind of how I want to do that. And here's my my hack about this stuff. Every year on my birthday, and it seems to me like the appropriate day is my birthday for this stuff. I know a lot of people do this stuff on New Year's, but I get away for a couple hours and I'm not at home. I usually go to a park or somewhere and I sit down and I really look at that list and say, well, how did I do on that stuff in the last year and how can I get better at it and what belongs on that list or what do I need to add or take off of that list? And then I do create a bunch of projects in OmniFocus and uh, when I was thinking about prepping for the show, I was thinking, I don't think I do that enough. I don't, I'm not sure my birthday every year is enough. I should probably pick two or three times a year to do that. But, um, we didn't talk about it at all in the show. And it is something I think very important. It's great. You know, it's great that you can get in the weeds and do all these tasks, but you know, what are you driving towards? And if you haven't thought about that, maybe you should do that first. How do you deal with that, Katie? I don't deal with it well is the the short version of that but having goals is is great but you can't just have a goal you actually have to take steps to achieve that goal and sometimes it's just taking the first step which may you may find yourself all of a sudden launching off a cliff and then you've got to very quickly take multiple pieces of action thereafter in order to to keep from nose diving but Having goals and taking action on those goals are two very different things. So, yes, while it's important to have goals and it's important to document your goals, you, you have to do more than just take those goals and write them down on a piece of paper. You have to ultimately take action on them. And I think it's important to to keep those goals somewhere, but also think, what are the one or two steps that I can do now to further those goals. And that's where those things go into OmniFocus for me, because getting this master's degree has been a goal of mine for a while. And you know what the very first step on that was, was setting a lunch appointment with somebody, because there was a there was a mentor in this community who had been through this program, who uh, had done it as a as the same way that I'm going through it. And and that was, I, I had put it off and I hadn't done it for several weeks. You know, gosh, I hadn't done it for a year. I could have done this two years ago. And and that was the first step is call so-and-so and create a lunch appointment. 
And that was easy. That wasn't a hard thing to do. That was a, a task and OmniFocus and then send an email and check and have a lunch appointment and be done with it. But then that, you know, generated thought and that generated more ideas. And then that turned into have a phone call with this professor. And then that turned into have a phone call with the dean. And then that turned into, you know, write an application. And then all of a sudden I found myself running down the cliff and boom, it was done and I was admitted. And now, now I've got to, you know, now I'm heading down the path of the goal. And I certainly don't want to say that it was on autopilot to some degree, but it was just taking those small steps. The first that I never would have gotten to being enrolled in my master's program right now, if I hadn't completed that first task of set a lunch appointment. Does that make yeah, but sense? I think it does, but I, I don't think you're really, I, I disagree to a certain extent. I think in your case, you knew or you think you thought it was very likely that you wanted to continue your education and that was a value or a plan that you had at, whether it was subconscious or conscious um but i don't think the idea should be that you stumble into these things i think the idea should be that just like we spend a lot of time deciding you know which tasks we're going to do we should spend a lot of time deciding what the underlying you know principles are that are driving these tasks and, you know, you could have done other things than go get a master's program and you rejected them. And you may not have done it in the nerdy way I do, you know, feeling like a hippie on my birthday, but you did make that decision. And I think that you could use technology to help you make that decision. I, I don't use it very well, technology at least in that sense, because for me, it's a text file. I could have it written down on a napkin, but I've, I've currently got it written down on something in NVAlt. Um, so it is something though I think we need to address and and I'm sure there's some apps out there to kind of help you prioritize and decide that stuff but you know Omni Outliner is a perfectly good way to do that uh, it allows you to rearrange um, you know I, I don't really have the answer here but I'm glad we, we raised the subject and thank you Stephen for the comment uh, we also heard from Matt um, about calendar invites he says how do you deal with clients or colleagues sending you poorly written calendar invites I stress out every time I get one which contains something like Matt computer guy, because he's the computer guy. And then the invite bugs him and reserving some obscenely long period of time in my calendar, taunting me, demanding that I either accept or deny the request. There doesn't seem to be any way to hide the invite and put my own event to modify the event. So I've accepted. So how do you handle these? It depends on what calendar system you're in, Matt, but I'm entirely with you. Like one of the things I do frequently with a lot of our friends from the show and just my friends in the geek community is I have regular phone calls with them and we schedule them sometimes a month in advance. And, um, and we call, I always call it, I always send the invite out and I always say geek call, you know, and then I put the person on it and I, and the invites will show who's in on that specific call. I never say, you know, call with Merlin or call with Jean because that she's getting that invite. She doesn't want a calendar event on her calendar that says call with Jean, right? So the, um, I do think that uh, using a little bit of mindfulness and creating those invites is a good idea. One of the things I do sometimes is I fib a little bit. Somebody sends me an invite that's poorly worded is I decline it. And then I send immediately send a new invite that's scheduled the way I want to call it. And then I say, Oh, sorry, I accidentally declined. So I sent you a new invite. So yeah. that's my trick. Lying, lying's always worked. I, I use an app and I think I've written it up before called Calendar Pace to do some of this. And it takes a lot of the, the work out of that process because it will create on your calendar. It, it's basically templates for calendar events. So you could create a template for Geek Call that always lasts and always has certain criteria on it. You know, it always lasts 30 minutes. It always lasts an hour. It always shows up on this particular calendar. Um, and 
you just tap it in calendar paste and then set the date and the time for it because obviously that's always going to change. And so that's just a little tip that I use is I use calendar paste and it just makes it easy to create those. Uh, another tip we got from listener William was about international travel and using MiFi. And, you know, I was aware of these MiFi's, but it, it didn't occur to me when we did the show outline. So he was uh, traveling in a car outside the U.S. and the family rented a car from Hertz in Spain. So they were offered the option to rent a MiFi unit that came with a car and it said it cost about $15 a day to rent. So since his whole family has iPhones and, um, and iDevices, the MiFi allowed them all to have the Internet and email the whole time they were in Spain. That's pretty smart. I think that'd be worth 15 bucks a day. Absolutely. I did not know that this was an option. I, I have not rented a car internationally ever, and it's been a while since I've rented a car. But I I would be curious to know if this is a common thing for, for car rental shops. Do they normally rent MiFi's? And I'd, I'd be curious to do this. So, A friend of the show, Liana Lehua, told me once that when she travels in Asia, Asia, she does the same thing where it's not related to a car rental, but there you can like buy a MiFi there relatively inexpensive and it comes with a pool of so many gigabytes of data and then you just you just basically work off that for the whole trip and you know that really changes the game rather than having to goof around with buying the international plan and making sure texts don't work or whatever if you're just on wi-fi the whole time you're you're golden so look into that if you're getting ready to do some international travel David, I've, I've got, I think that about wraps up everything we had to talk about, but I do have a few minutes before I have to go. And one of the things you put in the outline last month that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but I wanted to get to this month is you, you want to talk about what are some of our recent acquisitions and what are we playing with? Yeah, I'm right now. I do have a recent acquisition that I'm enjoying. Uh, <laughs> Not your iPhone. Uh, well, yeah, I, I'm enjoying my iPhone too, but this is something I've got thinking about. We had an earthquake and I got thinking about our overall, you know, uh, disaster preparedness. And we've got, we've got a lot of the things on the list, but we don't have the geek boxes checked. And that was bothering me. And I talked about it, I believe on the show or on the website recently about, you know, I'm looking into getting a solar charger, but if you look on Amazon, it's actually quite confusing as to what kind to get. I uh, heard from listener Terry and quite a few others who recommended the goal zero stuff. And I saw them, I believe they were at Macworld this year as they well. They were. Yeah. Yeah. So I went ahead and ordered, I got the goal zero nomad 13. So it's 13 inches. It's like a little binder. It's got a pocket in it. That you can drop an iPad in if you need, and it f- folds open and I've been testing it in my backyard. It's great. It just, it charges up a set. Of, it comes with a little battery pack that it can charge up. It comes with a little flashlight device and i really like it and i like the fact that i can charge i can get about three quarters of a charge with my initial test into my iphone off of that battery pack but i'm i think that maybe because i didn't leave it out in the sun long enough but uh, i'm still testing it but it's it's really great and now i know that if the power goes out i can tweet about it mm, that's important so is this yeah. about i'm seeing i'm not quite seeing that but i'm seeing a couple of different things is, is it about 125 bucks or so or yeah, that's about what it cost. It wasn't cheap, but I thought, you know, I think I'd like to have a good one because, you know, if if we have a big earthquake here and blah, 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 then I got thinking, well, what if all the solar, uh, cellular antennas are down? I'm not sure if it would really make that much difference. But then at least we could, you know, watch Star Wars on the iPads. Yeah, well, they're usually pretty good about, you know, in in areas where that happens, getting temporary, um, you know, those, those cell antennas on wheels and things like that out. Yeah, I've been, I've been looking at these too. How long did it take to charge it? 
Uh, I left it out. Uh, it, it, it charges a battery pack. So it's, you know, it just charges. That's no problem. I didn't, I haven't charged it yet with the device connected. Instead, the way, the way it rolls is it comes with a little battery pack with some AA batteries in it, but they're rechargeable batteries and a, and a cable, which may be a proprietary plug. It's very tiny, the plug, but then there's a whole bunch of other plugs in it. It's like a cigarette lighter and, you know, USB and different device uh, chargers. So what I've been doing is charging the battery pack and then using the battery pack to charge the phone inside. So it, it doesn't take any longer or less than any, you know, plug in charger would take. Okay. The trick is just, you just leave it outside. I've only had it a little while and, you know, I, I work Monday through Friday, so I haven't had a weekend really to dig in on it hard enough yet, but it's, it's a nice device. Yeah. Very well made. Well, I had, we had a issue um, at work and, you know, you've had an experience now here in Florida and you know that we have lightning and we had a no kidding man yeah it's not good we had a pretty big lightning storm here last month and we actually wait wait a second i want to know in your mind what is a pretty big lightning storm because to me the whole time i was in florida was a lightning storm oh no this was bad this was like for six hours straight it was just boom 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 it was yeah bad okay so what did you do How did that result in you buying things? How did that result in me buying things? I was very fortunate in that my personal house was fine and that I did not get hit. But our office got hit, unfortunately, and that led to all kinds of problems. It it looks like although we had these um, the battery backup units and pretty good surge suppression, and I may get some of this terminology wrong, on our AC power supplies, i.e. things that were plugged into the wall, um, we, we had problems that it came in through our cable line. And that's how a lot of people end up getting hit, is it will either come in through your cable or your phone line. And in our particular case, what happened is although we had very good surge suppression um, on our power lines, this came in through our cable line. It came in through our cable modem, fried our cable modem at the office, then went through the Ethernet cable that comes out of our cable modem at the office. Um, And then once it goes through that Ethernet cable, it's now in our network. And of course, everything at the office is networked. And so, so it had a field day from there. And lightning is very funny. I mean, it will skip over things and it will hit other things. And we ended up losing about three network cards and computers. Unfortunately, one of those was in my Mac mini. So I had to get one of those Mac mini USB adapter dongles. Um, we ended up losing several printers. It was it was not good. So after that, I, I went out searching to see what, if anything, could we have done differently? Because we've got all this great surge suppression um, on our power. What could we have done to keep this from coming into our network? And I found the APC Protect Net, and it's 40 bucks. You can probably find it a little bit cheaper on Amazon. And this protects an Ethernet data port from power surges. And so what I did is I, I got one for the office, but then I also got one for my personal house and I put this in line right behind the cable modem so I figure the cable modem there's not a ton that I can do to keep that from getting fried the cable company has suppression on it and there's not much more I can do beyond that but once it comes in and gets in through the cable modem that is the next thing in line after the cable modem hopefully that will then take the surge and it won't go any further than frying my cable modem and it it has a ground so I did have to attach it to a ground um, and and we'll see. I mean, I have not been struck by lightning yet, so I can't tell you whether or not it works. I may have just blown 40 bucks for nothing, but it, it makes me feel better. And I haven't noticed any network problems with it. So it doesn't yeah, seem to my, have that, slowed down my network my at question. all. That was my question. Does it, so does it have any impact on your network? Haven't noticed any. Have you run any tests? Like 
do a like a yes uh, i did i did run speed tests and i was getting you know just normal network speeds that i would normally get before and after okay so all right katie well sounds like uh we both have spent some money on uh you know safety kind of stuff next month i'm gonna buy something crazy so it's not so boring yeah good all right. Well, we've covered a lot of good stuff, a, a wide range of stuff, as we always do in, in these episodes. And so you can find links to all of that stuff uh, at our website at MacPowerUsers.com or at 5x5.tv slash MPU. I'm betting that I will have a uh, a link that that Hay has been lovingly collecting uh, throughout the show. Thank you, Haley, for doing that for us. Hey, you can you can send us feedback to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. You can find us on Twitter. We are at MacPowerUsers. Katie's at Katie Floyd, and I'm at Max Barkey. Uh, And I think that's going to wrap us up. Tell you what, I'm not going to tell you anything else other than you do not want to miss the next episode. It is awesome. See you then. See you then.